can I buy you lunch and a case of beer to just sit here today and, and change tires with you? Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? This is uh, Scott Groves coming to you from the On The Edge Podcast with my new friend, Greg Smith, which I, I say new, but we had kind of our introductory conversation about a week ago, and we immediately had so much in common when it came to banking, what we think about life. Our mutual friend, Kasim, shout out to Kasim from Front Row Dads who introduced us. And uh, man, the forward of your new, your new book, which is called uh, No Locked Doors, uh, releases here in July of 2023. Kasim wrote the the foreword for that, and um, I know you've been a big influence in his life. I didn't realize how big of an influence you've been until I read the foreword. And knowing Kasim, knowing where he came from, where he is today, you know, uh, brought a tear to my eye. I'm embarrassed to say we scheduled this uh, call so quickly to coincide with the release of your book. I have only a couple chapters deep. I haven't really got to dig into it, although I'm looking forward to our conversation because I guess the way that I would describe Greg, you know, if I was, if I was looking back at myself as a, as a young boy in the eighties, it's like, Oh, Greg's a businessman, you know? And I remember we always looked up to that one guy in our boy scout troop, whose dad was like a, I think he was a CPA or something, but he wore a white shirt to, to work and he could buy his minivan all cash. He didn't need to finance. And I was like, Oh, that's what a businessman is. And when I was reading your bio of like, Oh, I've helped some people buy some companies and sell some companies and go public. And I've managed, you know, uh, private wealth for very, very wealthy families. I'm like, Oh, the, the only word that comes to mind is like, Greg is like the, the stereotypical pinnacle of businessman. So maybe you can give us a little bit of background on you, Greg, like where you come from, how do you get into business? And then, you know, why the book, no locked doors. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I may ramble a bit here, so please rein me in if I do. Um, I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and after college, uh, took a position with the old Norwest Bank in Minneapolis, which today is Wells Fargo. I was in commercial lending for five years, which was a tremendous learning experience for me to see all kinds of businesses across all kinds of industries and get a really deep look into their financial situation, what their credit requirements were, what their working capital was or wasn't in some cases, what the collateral might be for a credit. And I really learned business from the eyes of inside the bank as an analyst in the bank. So I was effectively uh, charting uh, the bank's uh, position and future with these borrowers for probably seven or eight different lenders uh, commercial real estate, operating businesses, warehouse lines, retail ventures, I mean, all kinds of things. And uh, not looking too far into the future, I wasn't sure I really wanted to stay in banking because I would want to ascend to run a bank someday. And um, there's just very few people get a chance to do that. There's just layering and layering and layering. So yeah. I decided to abort uh, and it's in my book. I did kind of a crazy about face and I restarted my career at age 27 uh, in public accounting business and great respect for all people in the CPA business. I've engaged a lot of CPA firms in the years. I was there for two years and exactly two years. And in two years, you have your CPA license, certification, credentials. And then I made plans to leave. And I had the good fortune of identifying some ultra high net worth families. And I was able to take a position with one. And within a year's time, the corporate staff was leaving, retiring out, uh, stepping away for one reason or another. And the family said to me, look, you know, we weren't quite sure what we were going to do with you, but you've been with us for a year and maybe it's time for you to be the president of our 
family office, which at that time contained three or four banks. And by the time we were done, some 19 years later, there were 114 locations across eight states, including a publicly traded company. And along the way, we diversified. So wait, great. They made made you the president of their family business at, what were you now, 31, 32? Exactly 31. 31. Okay. And can you explain this to people? Because when we start to talk about this level of wealth, people don't really get it. And I've worked in banking my whole life, but I've never worked at like the higher echelon private banking. And it wasn't until I I had an office in Pasadena and there was this really beautiful office right across from us, you know, mahogany desks and big, you know, uh, just, it was just, it felt grand. And I remember talking to the receptionist, this is probably about 10 years ago. I'm like, Hey, are you guys a law firm over there? Or what do you do? She's like, no, we're a family office. And I'm like, Oh, what, what, what's a family office? She's like, you know, the, the family that, that runs this office, we've got about eight advisors and two lawyers and a president and, you know, they probably own, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 properties in California, Arizona. I'm like, oh, oh, so we're talking about multi-billionaire families that have to have a whole team of people running their finances. So, you know, obviously you can't divulge who the family was or any of the real specifics there, because I'm sure you have an NDA that lasts for a lifetime. But can you talk a little bit about, like, what does it really mean when you're a high net worth family and, and all the complications that come with that? Uh, that's a great question, and I, I was asked that question recently, and there's really no dollar standard or a threshold for high net worth or ultra high net worth, but uh, we'd have to inflation adjust it, quite frankly, right. Scott. And uh, so so I think plus or minus, I would put it somewhere around a, a net worth of $250 million with liquid assets, significant uh, check writing capability, and importantly, uh, credit facilities and probably not personally guaranteed credit facilities because the history and the legacy of the family would be such that with lenders, they would already know that the borrowers are going to be good for the money. So right. while there might be collateral, uh, ultra high net worth families don't often personally guarantee debt. It's kind of a distinct feature. Uh, usually there's a team of people, as you just described, uh, maybe there's a CPA, uh, possibly a lawyer. Uh, the smaller families will sometimes outsource those resources, but if they have uh, investments in uh, across industries, if you will, a number of industries, more than likely they have a team of people. Why? Because they need to be able to move quickly if a deal comes to them to be able to identify whether it's a real good fit or not, and then to apply their due diligence standards, which might be unique to that family, to proceed with whether they're going to make the investment or not. And we have an old adage uh, in the business that you might look at a hundred deals before you invest in one. And a lot of families practice that. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done. And that infrastructure is more affordable if you just have it in-house and you have those people trained and set to go and ready to move and and have flexibility. Yeah. Tell me if this kind of falls into the wheelhouse of what you used to do when you were managing this ultra high net worth family. Um, Let me think about exactly what I can say here. Um, I'm familiar with a family who sold a large, you know, grocery store plus department store chain plus uh, car business. You know, they just kind of exited all the family business and ended up with somewhere around a billion dollars. And a buddy of mine is working on a commercial development deal with them in California where, you know, tens of millions of dollars to put this deal together and coordinate with the city and build mixed use commercial plus luxury condos, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, he said, Scott, he's like, I've been working on this deal for nearly two years to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. 
and I'm pretty close to meeting a family member. Cause, cause you know, mm-hmm. he's been working with the business manager who runs the family estate and then the lawyers that work under them. But of course the family wants to come in and get to know the guy once they cement the deal or, you know, just before cementing the deal. But a, a lot of people would think of these families more of like a corporation, like they're a large hedge fund or a business, but like wrapping our head around the fact that there's a family, you know, the Jones family or whatever, that's so wealthy that they might own all kinds of commercial real estate and some banks and an airport and a car dealership and a grocery store. It's just, I think it's just unfathomable to most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had my own experience in, in Los Angeles, uh, pitching a deal that was just a glove fit for a family and they owned a pile of real estate on Wilshire Boulevard and might even be the family that you're referring to, uh, Asian as I recall it. And to get to the family, setting aside all of the unique social norms and expectations of that particular family, uh, one just had to work through layers and layers and layers. It's like trying to get to Bill Gates. Right. I mean, if you have a good connection to the Gates Foundation or one of the affiliates, that's great, but it's not likely Bill or Linda are going to pick up the phone and call you back. So right. you have to work through those channels. And I would say families, you know, really, really much smaller, as I've mentioned, at maybe 250 million, 500 million. Again, the numbers are just an index, but um, a lot of these families really want to be kept private. And so right. that wall of confidentiality, which is their business people that are in front of them, managing these businesses and managing due diligence process and managing prospective deals going into the future and negotiating credit facilities often have another responsibility. And that is to keep uh, Business Week and the Wall Street Journal and any other media away from the family. And that's very, very important. And in my book, we have changed all names, all identities, all corporations, all businesses. Yeah. So we're, you know, the, the, the incidences are real, but the story isn't so much about the incidences as how to deal with them and how to get through uh, problems in business in a, in a in an effective way. And that's many of the chapters of the book are about that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned privacy. Uh, I know people that have come into a minute amount of money in comparison to what we're talking about. And everybody has their hand out and everybody's trying to scam them out of a dollar. And if I remember correctly, maybe Chris can look this up. I want to say that like the daughter of the founder of In-N-Out, who's one of the wealthiest women in California, like when she started putting herself out there publicly, I think she was kidnapped or like a couple attempted kidnappings. I mean, it's just yeah. when you're when you're of that wealth, there there's a whole nother set of problems that people don't think about. So anonymity and privacy and and, you know, sometimes there's tax benefits of hiding things through other other things. But a lot of times it's just like, yeah, you don't want your public profile out there where you can't you no. know go eat a burger without concern of getting kidnapped? Well, and there are certainly exceptions. I mean, you know, we can both think of families that are way out there that love the social media that, 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 you know, thrive on that. It feeds their ego. Right. Right. And and let's, let's admit that people of all types and all kinds have, have egos. So how that ego is managed is really important. But if you've witnessed or been a part of or know of a kidnapping that was attributed to wealth envy, then you're probably not going to want to be out there too much. And particularly in family offices where you have succession with children who will be coming into that wealth at some juncture, uh, you not only have the management of their financial well-being, but their social well-being as well. So uh, it's a really delicate issue and it's highly personalized for families. And uh, we have to respect that, you know, they're contributing to the economy by creating jobs and more jobs and additional jobs that are investing across industries and, um, you know, it, it, it's phenomenal the things that you touch and that touch you 
when you're in a family office, because then it's not just about the employees, it's about their spouses, it's about their children. If the business takes a tip or a tilt, and we talk about this in the book, where one company we had to uh, ask these folks to suffer a 30% pay cut for those that stayed and a one third reduction in workforce in order to save the company. Now we were able to hire them all back, but again, in a family office, you want to make friends and you right. want to build loyalty and build relationship. You may not have a big corporate profit sharing plan like a major publicly traded company. You're not putting out quarterly financial statements to shareholders, to shareholders back in the office in the corner. Mm -hmm. But he can touch a lot of people or she can touch a lot of people as the journey goes. And uh, that's that's part of the fun in working in a family office. And another, quite frankly, and I just referenced it is you can get a decision real quick. You yeah. don't need to call a board meeting and put in layers of management. If management wants to move forward, that's the family office. It only takes one person or two people to step forward and say, yeah, we're going to do that. And that's where you need to be on Monday morning. And do you find that these family offices and these enclaves of wealth can be a little bit more strategic on the long-term good because they're not worried about quarterly earnings? They're not worried about, oh, what's the report to the stockholders going to look like in 72 days? Can they make, I, I, what I'm trying to say is, I guess, can they make better cultural, socioeconomic, you know, good for the country decisions because they're not worried about meeting next quarter's numbers? It's like the family's the family. They have the wealth that they're going to, have their wealth or is it all it all relative to the quality of the family well no i think uh and, and i've witnessed this myself a number of times where you might be surprised at just exactly how much these private families are able to accumulate and distribute and they start recognizing that once they've had a few successful transactions or maybe had a few successful exits uh, and maybe uh, an exit that was a stock exchange, which means that the tax part of the transaction is deferred. We can talk about that. Um, but once they have that uh, momentum going, they realize they are exposed to paying huge federal income taxes, even if it's long-term capital gains. So they can take the steps necessary to start protecting the corpus of those assets through foundations and family trusts and there's many vehicles that a family will use. And yes, to your point, they can take the long-term view. And that's part of also teaching the children that are coming up in their succession as to what is their responsibility as wealth accumulates to give back or give ahead uh, to the community. And all of the families that I've worked for have done that extensively mm -hmm. uh, and, and at an early stage and with the patriarchs of the family. So those lessons were taught when the children were young and then as they rose uh, in age and, and maturity and in the business or businesses, then, you know, they could practice those same things. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to you with something that you said, uh, for those that are listening to the podcast and not watching on YouTube, you know, you're, you're a little bit older and wiser and a little bit more gray hair and reading your bio. I know what an exceptional man you've become and the, the things that you've accomplished, but what was it about you at 30 that these people saw, or 31, that these people saw something exceptional where they would put you at the helm of this multi-hundred million dollar empire. It's like, again, I'm, I'm sure you're a wonderful guy at 31, but if I win half a billion dollars tomorrow on the lotto, I'm probably not hiring a 31-year-old to manage it, right? Like, I, I want that older statement, the guy, statesman, and even if it's just perception versus reality, I want somebody that's been through a few different economic cycles, like, 
why you? What was what was special about you? And that's a weird question for you to answer because I'm sure you think highly of yourself, but uh, I, well, I think people would want to know why. How did you get this at bat at 31 years old? Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, I guess the answer is I'm really quite charming. No, I'm only kidding. That's, <laughs> that's, that's intended to be a joke, although I am charming. Um, uh, probably a number of things. I mean, the, the team at the office I had just started working in a year's time was shifting. I mean, one person wanted to go out and run his own bank, and another was working, decided to work with another family, and another was changing career. And uh yes my age was young but i had some pretty advanced experience with a major uh at that time regional bank now a national bank and i had excellent training and um i was quite articulate on business issues and maybe above everything else uh when i spoke to the family or members of the family I didn't mince any words. I mean, if I saw that things weren't quite right or things could be improved upon, or maybe there was some wasted overhead here or there. Uh, and I went out to the business points that they owned and I looked at these businesses and I took the time besides just doing financial and book work and tax work. I mean, I actually went to the businesses and met the people running the businesses in the family's enterprise and brought back you know, my perspectives and thoughts about how those businesses could be more efficient based on my five years in commercial lending and two years in public accounting, having worked again with a lot of a lot of commercial businesses. And I guess they found uh, truth and integrity, but they also found persistence that I really had thought through what I was talking about mm -hmm. and was ready to move forward with a plan to execute. Now that's a whole nother story, you know, for a 30 year old to start executing a plan of change with a 50 year old or a 60 year old who's in cement boots with the business that he's been running and has changed hands a couple of times and now it's owned by this family office. So, you know, I kind of got put in my place as being a little uppity by certain people in the organization, but the family at the end of the day makes the decision and it's their investments and it's their money at risk. So, you know, again, if we found tangible ways to improve a business, whatever that might be, um, chances are I would have the full faith and support of the family behind me. And, and uh, we had some very positive experiences early in my career. And so, you know, we just moment, momentum and inertia are very powerful forces. Right. And yeah. so when you have a couple wins, you know what the taste of victory is. You start moving forward with a little more confidence and a little more bounce in your step. And um, yeah, pretty soon, as I said, we were buying uh, businesses all over the place and crossing industries into chemical insurance, real estate, aviation. And though the core of the business was always banking, commercial banking, uh, little did I know when I left my original starting job in a bank, thinking that maybe someday I could become a bank president, but probably not. Now I had, you know, quite a few bank presidents reporting to me. Hey, this quick interruption is brought to you by me, Scott Groves, the host of the On The Edge podcast. This podcast is brought to you by me. Uh, I'm a loan officer who can help you with a mortgage in all 50 states across the United States. I also coach loan officers. So if you are a home buyer who's looking to get a mortgage, if you're a realtor who's looking to partner with an awesome loan officer, or if you're a loan officer looking for coaching, get in touch with me. It's those sources of revenue that allow us to produce this podcast and get out a new episode to you every week for the last couple of years. So if you're looking for a mortgage, if you're looking for a mortgage lender to partner with, or you're looking for a mortgage coach, I'm your guy. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming.
you know, it, it, you're kind of reminding me of, and I'm going to paraphrase here, I'm probably going to butcher the quote, you know, something with Warren Buffett that he has said a lot is like, oh, I just, you know, some kids start reading comic books when they're teenagers. I started reading financial reports because I thought they were, those were more interesting. And eventually, yeah. whether you're buying Wells Fargo, the bank, or Gillette, the, you know, sundry development company, or you're buying an auto dealership, business is business is business. Like if you can look at a set of financial documents, you're going to be okay, no matter what the downline product is. Uh, and it sounds like kind of the same thing. Like you had this experience from the CPA, from the commercial lending world that like, oh, a tax return is a tax return is a tax return. Like you can add a few more zeros, but if you know where the depreciation schedule is, or you know where the where the little tricks to hide income or, or loss is, like it's all the same stuff, right? So um, was it just kind of dumb luck that you were uniquely qualified to look at a wide swath of businesses and financial or were you thinking when you were 20 like hey here's the kind of practical experience I need to get to get to this point where I can be the president of a bank was it was it strategic in your 20s or was it just this convergence of dumb luck that you had all this experience that you brought to the table when you were 30 uh, I would say it was more strategic than luck although timing is everything and as I stated in my book I was born as a white male, so I probably have some <clears throat> gender opportunities back in those times that others didn't have. Um, uh, I would say it's strategic in this sense, because as I was working as a commercial loan officer in a regional bank, uh, identifying all kinds of issues in these businesses from the standpoint of the banker who had right. money out and was credit risk with the, with the business, I could see opportunities for the business to improve. I, it right. just, you know, I could just see it. And again, as you said, agnostic as to all industries, whether it was a, a manufacturer or a franchise organization or whatever it might be, the banker is conflicted in giving too much advice to the borrower in terms of how they should run their business. Because if the borrower takes that advice and the business fails, well, where did the advice come from? The lender? Right. That in some books would be... Uh, unintentional tortious interference with the business. <laughs> and uh, there's plenty of lawsuits about lender liability where uh, lenders unknowingly have stepped into something where they maybe were over their skis and all of a sudden there's the threat of litigation. So um, my uh, abilities were better attuned to um, that of someone other than a lender or creditor and it just occurred to me once I got my CPA license that I now had the credentials and the experience to do something quite unique. So, excuse me, I interviewed with three different ultra high net worth families and, and they were all uniquely different. And uh, the third one turned out to be the charm. And, and I was very grateful to have had that opportunity to not only get a position there, but in a short period of time, uh, end up with quite a few responsibilities. And as you said, Running a business uh, isn't so much particular about the business, right? It could be a company that makes coffee beans, or it could be a company that manufactures motorboats. We had bought a uh, an airline, this family had bought an airline about 10 or 11 years into my tenure with them. And shortly thereafter, the founder, co-founder and CEO of the airline died unexpectedly after a flight uh, of an aircraft, and he would fly from time to time. Uh, but he passed away of failed angioplasty. And it was, it was a horrible situation because the company had just changed hands. It was leveraged with debt. And I said to the family, look, you know, it's horrible, but we're, you know, we'll get through this and we'll find some of the best aviation people in the country 
And the family said, you know what? Maybe there's enough aviation people there. Maybe that you've worked for us for 10 or 11 years now. You should go over there and figure it out. How does that work? <laughs> and I was in the middle of a bank acquisition at the time in the <laughs> Southwest and, and, and the kind of dual tasks. So I had to, uh, I ended up working a lot of hours and learning the airline business real fast. But yeah, the situation of looking at an airline and its financial statements, you know, think about this. An airline has a commodity and that's a seat on an airplane. In this case, it was a charter airline, which means these big planes were chartered by tour operators. So we never really sold a seat. We sold it, well, the planes by the hour. But uh, that, that seat is only useful or, or, or of any use or value only until the time the plane takes off. And then when it's in the air, you know, an empty seat doesn't have any value. So if we look at a bank and a bank has a vault and the vault is full of cash, and if they don't lend that money out by the end of the day and it sits in the vault, what good is it? It didn't earn anything. So it's just sitting in the vault. And, and that's what we had to do was kind of draw the analogy between making the best, highest efficient use of the assets in the one hand of a bank cash, and that's to put it out in good credits or the seats on an airplane to try and figure out how to get them sold uh, and put into use before the plane takes off because it's going to take off. I love that. Um, you know, I want to get to your book, The uh, No Locked Doors, because obviously I've got, I've, I've already written down like 30 questions that we could do a whole podcast on. But when we talk about your book, who's the avatar that you want reading your book? You know, I, I think it's, I think it's normal. You get to a certain age or a certain wealth or a certain level of success. Like you want to impart that knowledge on the next generation. You want to take people like Kasim under your wing in order to mentor them. Who do you hope reads your book? That's an easy question. Uh, as we've touched on here, the book was a gift from Kasim, and I had known Kasim since 2005, 2006. And I would say that there's been a fair bit of mentoring going on, but sometimes the mentee becomes the mentor. So that is the case with Kasim and I. And uh, what he asked me to do a number of years ago was write a book. He said, you know, you really could mentor more people, but there's only so many hours in a day, but we're in a digital world. And maybe if you would write a book, we could get that book out to people that are looking for some advice, some counsel, uh, maybe some comfort, maybe to build a little confidence, maybe to try and figure out what skills they need to build in order to be successful in a business and how to really tackle problems and do it with integrity and responsibility. And I never got around to doing it. Uh, he gave me a beautiful leather bound book and a pen and I never got around to do it. Uh, though it's, there's a side story I'll come back to. So uh, we put this book together and he gave me the gift and the company Scribe uh, had the resources with uh, editors to assist and support the book and graphics arts and all the rest of it. And I've had so many people that have read the pre-release of the book come back to me and say, you know, your experiences, although they're unique and different to you, are much like my own in my world. And I'm never going to write a book, but I want to give your book to my children and to my grandchildren and let them see the wisdom of being persistent, being truthful, being broad-minded, um, having failures. Let the failures teach you all those messages and you know i'm 72 years old right so a lot of the guys who are reading this book are in their 60s 70s 80s and they're saying dang i could write that book i say yeah 
go try and write a book. It's a lot of work. <laughs> and I never would and I would never would have done it if Cosmo hadn't nudged me in this direction. So we wrote the book and I would say the book really could be for anybody that's that's got some real challenges in their life and we all do and some have impossible challenges and many of us have challenges that we could manage through but maybe we give up a little too soon maybe we quit too soon or maybe the environment around us pushes us to just abort the mission and and that's what this book is about is don't abort look at that door look at the keyhole look at the light coming through the keyhole ask yourself are you really going to walk away just because your key didn't work you tried a key and it didn't unlock look at the light coming from underneath the door go around the other side of the door and look at the door from the other side and the light coming through and look above the door and the side panels on the sides come back around maybe you think about it maybe you'll find that key maybe it'll just happen yeah so that's that's kind of what we're trying to convey in the book so I, I, I always try to think about, okay, where is my audience maybe rolling their eyes, right? Um, where, where are they either checking out or, you know, they're critiquing my, uh, my marketing assistant, Chris, he has a, um, he doesn't have a negative attitude, but he has like a very suspicious contrarian. Like he's always looking for the scam, right? Oh, he's lo always looking for, for the angle of like, yeah, well that was easy for you, but maybe that won't work for our YouTube channel or wh whatever the case may be. That's like his personality, which is sometimes endearing, sometimes infuriating. So, you know, you already mentioned like you're 72 years old. So that would put you born in the fifties, you know, college in the seventies, building your empire in the seventies, eighties, nineties. There was definitely a benefit to being uh, born a middle-class white male in America at that time. Right. And then we're talking about Absolutely. a family with ultra high net worth where their kids are going to inherit hundreds of millions. Um, so it would be very easy for somebody to roll their eyes and be like, oh, well, yeah, of course there's no locked doors for you because it was just easy. But your story starts out with our friend Kasim, who is brown, by the way, and um, grew up to a single mother who was blind. And he mentions in the first couple paragraphs of your book that he was basically a welfare baby. And, you know, that was a big chip on his shoulders that I'm going to be self-made and mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to I'm going to overcome because we came from literally nothing. Uh, and then, you know, that starts to weave into the story of like nobody is self-made. And we all we all got lucky somewhere, even if it's just like you end up in America where there's infrastructure and there's working roads. So can you talk to that person that maybe feels either they're from a, you know, underprivileged class, whatever that means, or maybe they've got no money. They, they, they have no tailwind. They're just like, there's things I want to accomplish, but the deck is stacked against me. What are a couple mm -hmm. lessons from your book for that person that feels maybe rightfully so, or maybe it's just a story they're telling themselves, but what are a couple lessons from your book for that person that feels like the deck is stacked against them? Mm -hmm. Well, um, if they have the feeling that the deck is stacked against them, then chances are we need to change the feeling, right? Because we all have issues and, and uh, uh, problems to deal with. Uh, and as I said before, some of us have insurmountable problems and we are blessed and fortunate to be in the United States. There's no question about that. Um, uh, I think that uh, if, if people would would come to the question of challenge with a positive attitude and, and avoid the negative attitude and the negative attitude of others who will always heap their negative attitudes upon us. It's just human nature. I mean, our body is like a vessel and we have to tip all the negative stuff out to make room for the positive stuff. But if we can get through a bit of positive affirmation and then maybe find a mentor, 
And maybe it's someone in our family, but maybe not. Maybe it's an uncle, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend of a friend who we envision has perhaps had some success. Not that we're going to model our life after that person, but that person has found a way to move themselves along on a path, on their journey, uh, with some accomplishments, and maybe that person could be a mentor. And I would add that uh, <laughs> in the case of Cosm, setting goals, I mean, if we set goals that are, un that are unfathomable, they're huge, we just set ourselves up for disappointment. And uh, with our dear friend, we had to learn taking small steps, have success, take a few more small steps, have success. Success, when you know it and you feel it, is very rewarding and it's stimulating and it creates momentum and it creates inertia. And momentum and inertia are very powerful forces. We all deserve a win. We all deserve a success. And how we got that success is important, too. And we talk about that in the book because there's a lot of ways to achieve success and some of them are, are not so good. But uh, I do think that uh, small steps, small goals... And written goals. Uh, I know that's an overused expression, but if you can't write it down, it's probably not going to happen. Why is that so, so powerful? Um, Why? Because I've read the study. I think it was a famous Harvard or Stanford study where they followed people for 30 or 40 years. And the people who actually wrote down their goals and looked at them from time to time, you know, if, if I write down, I want to lose one pound a week until I'm 190 pounds and, you know, 15% BMI, if you actually write that down, for some reason, I, I don't know what the science is, but why, why is that so important? I, I know it to be true from the studies that are out there, but do you have any idea why it actually works in practicality? Yeah, yeah. And I think the multiple factor is like 25 or 30x more common that people that write down a goal will actually achieve it. And what it is, it's a written affirmation. It's a written affirmation. It's a statement. Uh, you can pin it on your wall. Maybe it's part of a visualization board of where you want to go and where you want to be and a pathway and how you're going to get there. But it's an affirmation and it's a self-affirmation. So perhaps no one knows about it but you. But if you don't keep a focus on it and, and have a pathway towards getting that step done, you know that you have that failure and you own it. It's like buying a gym membership at Christmas time and we're all going to go in and, and get healthy. And then what happens in January and February? We've got the receipt for the paid monthly membership, but no one's in the gym. The gyms are empty. Yep. And we know that if we don't go, I mean, that's that's our own personal weight that we have to carry that, that we just gave up. And, and the book is not about giving up. The book is about achieving and moving forward and finding that way in our life and, and finding people that can help us. I mean, Cosmo and I got together in the most unusual set of circumstances. And um, I mean, we came from literally two different planets and uh, we each found purpose in getting to know each other. We each did for our own unique reasons. And, you know, some people might be surprised at who's willing to help them and who is willing to mentor them just a little bit. And that's all it takes is a little nudge, a little push. And all of a sudden it's potential for great things to happen. So let me ask you this. There's there's somebody out there listening. Uh, we did an event at UNLV College where we had about 20 men come in. And it was interesting because, uh, ironically, the women from the liberal arts department reached out to me. 
Um, and I'm kind of an anti-liberal arts person, if I'm being honest. I'm kind of a libertarian. I don't really believe in public funding for schools. Like, I'm kind of the avatar of who you wouldn't want to invite into your college, you know, your public college. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, hey, here's the reality. We've got a million programs for women in science and STEM programs and assistant. We have a huge problem with men dropping out of college, having no camaraderie, not having a lot of purpose. Like the 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 stats for men in college are abysmal. Um, and we've heard that you're kind of a, I guess I would use the term alpha male. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they saw in me, but they're like, hey, will you come in and do an event for, for you know, we want to do this as a test pilot for 20 young men. Um, and it was awesome. And some of those men were asking, okay, like, how do I find a mentor, right? Like, one of them wanted to go into law, and one of them wanted to go into a very specific niche writing, journalistic field. And they're like, okay, well, that's all fine and good, and we're here at college, and we're learning our craft or some version of it. Um, how would you recommend people go about finding a mentor? You know, if somebody if somebody wanted to find a bank president, they're like, you know, I'm just getting started. I'm getting out of college with my CPA degree, and um, one day I want to run. One day I want to run a bank. I, I've got a, a 20 year runway where between now and then I want to run a bank or a mortgage company. How could somebody seek out a mentor? Uh, I call it informational interviewing, and inf informational interviewing can be used for many, many, many different reasons, even possibly investigating a company that might be for sale. But we're not there yet. We're talking about someone that's maybe quite young or in school uh, seeking that mentor and maybe finding a way to make a connection. If it were in a bank with, uh, with a loan officer uh, who's sitting at a desk and you just breeze in and sit down and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not here to make a deposit or borrow any money, but I'm looking for a career, the potential of a career in uh, banking. And I'm not quite sure I know where to start or where to begin. And I thought the best way to just go and lay it out is with a bank and with a banker and uh, explore what's in the realm of the possible. Um, that could go thousands of different ways. I can imagine that conversation going many different ways and it has no downside risk to it. Right. And plenty of people sitting at a desk in a bank, I mean, notwithstanding post COVID, uh, that have the time to talk to uh, someone walking in the bank, perhaps a potential client, and take up that conversation. And I will add this. Uh, Dale Carnegie wrote a book in 1934, 1936 called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And this is a very important message, I think, for any of your listeners. The more you can get someone to talk to you, the more they will trust you, the more they will believe in you, and the more they will want to help you. But you have to get in front of that person, and I don't mean digitally or on the phone or via an email. I mean physically sitting across from them and having eye contact and body contact, I mean visual body contact, and, and see what's going on with that person that you can get them to maybe talk about themselves, maybe talk about their career, maybe talk about their family. And all of a sudden, they're talking about all kinds of things to the point where you want to get away and you can't because they're just loving to talk so much. And it is true, and Carnegie tells us this, that people like to talk about themselves. They like to talk about their backgrounds, and maybe they like to talk about their families. Maybe they don't. Maybe they like to talk about their successes, not their failures. That's fine. But there's trust that begins to build. And then there's a helpfulness that begins to build. And so we always learn more by being listeners. Then we do talkers. 
right? I mean, if we talk all the time, we're not going to learn much. But if we're good listeners, that's highly effective, not only because you're going to learn more, but you're going to have more people trusting you and embracing you and wanting to help you. Someone asked me the other day, what did I think was the most important trait for success in business? I said, listening. You wouldn't think of it, but it is true. And I've witnessed this so many times across all professions where people are not good listeners and the business opportunities go right over their head along with important deal points, contract points in negotiation, <clears throat> things that add value or cause loss of value in a deal because people weren't listening. And I think it's about listening. So I think if, if we're looking for a mentor, we're looking for some guidance, we're willing to take some small, small, small steps. I think talking to people and engaging in what I call informational interview. I'm thinking of going to work in a bank. I don't know where to start. Where could we start? Where, what could we talk about? Or whatever the industry is, right? I mean, right. whatever the industry is. Or maybe no industry specifically, just I'm interested in getting into manufacturing. And so you are in your local town or your small town, and maybe you don't know any manufacturers. So you go to a bank and say, do you guys have any clients that are manufacturers? Because I really want to get into manufacturing. You say, well, we have five customers that are in manufacturing. There's one right down the street. I'll make a call. You could go over there and talk to them right now. It just happens. So I've got a buddy um, uh, who much later in life decided he wanted to live off the grid. I mean, this this was a, this was a, I've never worked on anything other than a keyboard my entire life. And he just wanted to live off the grid. And he started making a list of skills that he would need to have to live way out in the middle of nowhere. And he was like, you know, I don't know how to change a tire. I sure as hell don't know how to patch a tire. So he just went to like just tires and walked up to the mechanic. He's like, hey man, this is gonna be a weird request. Can I buy you lunch and a case of beer to just sit here today and, and change tires with you? And the guy was like, what in the fuck are you talking about? He's like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm moving out to the middle of nowhere about two hours outside of Reno. I have no clue how to patch or change a tire and it's gonna happen. So I need to obtain that skill. And he said he ended up going back there several days in a row and by the time he was done, he got a master class in emergency brake pad change, changing the tire, what fluids to worry about, what normally goes wrong in a modern car. And he's like, I just, I, for, for a couple lunches and a case of beer, you know, less than a hundred bucks, I got a master class on something that might save my life in the middle of nowhere if I get a flat tire while I'm on the way, you know, to the hospital because I've got an emergency. And I'm like, that's all he did was ask. That's all, that's all he had to do. And people are so willing to share of their knowledge and their expertise. It's much easier than you might think. Uh, um, so I, I want to go back to some of the deal flow. You mentioned, you know, the family and I know some property investors that will do this. They've got to look at a hundred deals to find one that's worthwhile or find that diamond in the rough. So can you talk a little bit when you were leading the charge on evaluating deal flow, maybe, you know, what were your, some of your favorite questions to ask or what were the things that you were looking for in a business when you were evaluating this? Cause you know, my wife and I have some money set aside. The mortgage business is not producing as much revenue as, as, um, as it once was. And the kids are in school now. So my wife's looking for a project in a business and we're like, Oh, let's, you know, let's go on biz buy sell and start looking at some businesses that maybe we could invest in or purchase. And she could kind of run it. She's super good with people. I'm really good at logistics and it kind of makes sense, but can you talk a little bit about, you know, I'm sure you guys were looking at small deals and large deals and extra large deals. 
did you have a couple go-to questions or interview styles or things specifically you were looking for in the company that's like, all right, this is going to help me filter out the first 95 of the deals. Then maybe we'll go deep with five of them to, to buy one of them. Or can you talk a little bit more about that deal flow and how you would evaluate mm-hmm. that? Yeah, it, you know, the, we really have to customize every deal opportunity. But if we go up in the Goodyear balloon at about 30,000 feet, maybe we could start with some high-level questions. Uh, the first, and we learned this in banking, is that while there's all kinds of important factors, uh, the character of who we're dealing with is probably near the top of the list. If we're dealing with a seller that uh, has any uh, shades of dishonesty or lacks integrity, chances are we may get taken advantage of, not all the truth may come out, it may be impossible due to collusion to get all the information that we should have. So if the people that we're dealing with just don't feel right, and, and our gut feeling should tell us that, and so should our, our, our brain, but usually our brain doesn't activate as quickly as our feeling of nausea. Right. Uh, if we have that feeling, no, no matter how great the deal might be, the chances are good, it's probably not going to be as good as you think it is. And so I'd say the character of people and who we're dealing with is very important. That's why references are also important. Real references, if we're dealing with an introduction to a business that might be for sale or people that we might be working with is how do we know them? Where did the introduction come from? And of course, in a digital world, we can get so much information about a company or business or an industry um, that uh, we really owe it to ourselves to do as much homework as we can before we even engage in the conversation so we're not wasting time. If we're going to use debt or leverage in terms of the acquisition of a business, we may want to talk to our banker or our lender uh, and see what will be the criteria for a loan and what are the ramifications of a loan if this is a leveraged business. And of course, economic conditions are also important to any acquisition or merger or business combination if we're moving forward with our equity and we're putting our equity into a business is where are we in the economic cycle? When I got into the banking business for this particular high net worth family that we were talking about in 1981, interest rates were approaching 21 and three quarters percent. Now, most people can't imagine 21 and three quarters percent but CDs, certificates of deposit in a bank, were paying 15 and 16% for a one-year, two-year, three-year certificate of deposit. And then the banks are putting that money out at a 5% margin at 20 or 21 or 22. There aren't many businesses that can survive at a 22% cost of funds. Right. And that gets to be about the cost of equity. If equity is looking for a 20 or 22% return, now we're using the money as debt. And, and the one thing about the debt is it's certain. It's got to be paid back. The equity, well, you know, investor beware, it may not get paid back. That, that, that runs at a higher risk of loss than the bank who's in a senior position and often a senior secured position. So um, uh, in, in, in any business transaction uh, at the higher level, um, you have a lot of work to do where the business stands in the industry and its peer group, what kind of business it is, where are we in economic cycle, interest rates, whether it's financeable or not, how much equity is it going to take? And then we start to drill down and get into the terms of the transaction and will the seller take financing or are we trying to buy 100% control 
or should we leave the sellers in to run the business for a while and leave them in for some equity and make uh, make an earnout arrangement of some sort in terms of the deal terms? Is it all cash at closing or is there an earnout? And then ultimately, we're going to need a lawyer to help draw up the documents. So we at least might want to be aware that we're going to need legal counsel. And who would that legal counsel be? And it's probably not going to be $1,300 an hour in Washington, D.C., but maybe something a little more affordable in the $300, $400 an hour rate. And yes, that's what starting lawyers bill out at is about $350, just about anywhere in the country. So lawyers are expensive. And, and if you're going to buy real estate, you need a real estate lawyer. If you're going to buy a commercial business, you need a commercial real estate lawyer. If you're going to buy a commercial uh, real estate business uh, in the franchise industry, you need a franchise lawyer. So there's all kinds of specialties and you keep on drilling down and drilling down and drilling down and you know, it's a great deal of work. And ultimately, you might actually make an acquisition and an investment. I, I love that there's all these complicated steps to buying a business. And you started with, if my spidey sense is going off, it's just a non-starter. If there's, it doesn't matter how attractive maybe the numbers look. If your gut is telling you this is not somebody to be reckoned with, you just, you just, it's just a non-starter. And I, I love that because... I know for myself, the couple times I've gone against my gut and tried to talk myself into it with the numbers, it always backfires. Yeah. Can you talk sure. about uh, can you talk about any epic failures? I'm sure in your storied career, there's been a few misfires. Um, is there something that that comes to mind of like, ooh, I learned a real good lesson there? Uh, I talk about my failures uh, in the book. And uh, this isn't so much in business as it is in college and trying to finish up my academic credentials in school. And uh, I was in a class, believe it or not. I mean, I still look back on it and ask myself, how did I allow myself to get into this position? But I let my ego take control of me as I was uh, making my way through levels of a foreign language. I was studying a foreign language in high school, got into college, thought I would just progress and migrate through. and and become quite expert in a foreign language. And, oh, I just got my head handed to me. And at the same time, I was starting to take some accounting and finance classes and accounting in particular in college. And I was getting like C minus D plus D in accounting. I could not, I, for some reason I had a mental block. And I think part of it was because I was failing so much in the foreign language class that I was letting it spill over and I got caught up in this momentum and inertia of failure. And, and the momentum was going the wrong way. I was sliding downhill academically. I couldn't stay focused. I had lost my train of thought. Um, I needed to find a reset button because this was not, this was not going well. And I'm the, I'm the oldest of three kids in a family and my folks had you know very stern expectations about grades and discipline and uh, you know, I was disappointing them and I was really disappointing myself. So I had to find a reset and uh, and come out of it again with small steps, small goals, small milestones, take many, many steps backwards. And who'd have thought I'd have, you know, ended up getting a CPA license, which at the time was a two and a half day examination, mostly by pencil and paper. It isn't today. It's digital. And I think it's two days, 16 or 20 hours. But uh, yeah, I, I uh, you know, again, turn things around, have a few small successes, have a few small victories that creates the, the momentum that you're looking for in your life. I love that. Um, you know, you mentioned that 
the the CPA, the the banker background, and I'm going to give a shout out to my loan officer friends that are that are watching this show because we get a lot of loan officers who watch us. Loan officers have a really unique business sense, and unfortunately, we get lumped in with all the the other salespeople. So loan officers kind of get a bad rap. But loan officers is one of that few businesses where you have to work business to business, right? I've, I've got to go B2B with the realtors to nurture the relationships and get the referrals and, and that ongoing referral base. But then the second we get a lead, it becomes a B2C type, um, type situation where you're then working with the consumer and walking them through the transaction and whatnot. Um, what were some of the skills that you learned in that B2B world that have carried over through the, through the rest of your life, you know, cause there, there was a couple chapters that really struck me in your book of like, Oh, I got to get to those ones because that will help me on my B2B skills versus B2C skills. And obviously you had to have the interpersonal skills to work with the family, but B2B, you know, when you're 30, 35, and like you said, you're going into some of these grizzled old veterans that have been running their family business for 40 years that you're thinking about acquiring. Um, what were some of those interpersonal skills and those B2B skills that would allow you to break the ice, have the conversation about buying their business? And Because I've got to imagine a founder who's selling their business can kind of tank you from the beginning or they can be your biggest uh, resource. So is it, just, is it just the old school interpersonal skills of listening or were there some B2B skills where you could talk the talk? Like what, what, what's the thing looking back on your career that gave you the most success? Uh, coming into a meeting, being prepared. Mm. Uh, if, if, if I would come into a meeting or others would come into the same meeting and they weren't prepared, uh, the party on the other side really should have no patience in dealing with you at all and just dismiss you. <clears throat> and it happens uh, where uh, you, you, you ruin the first impression, right? The first impression is you're coming in prepared. You've asked for the time. You've petitioned this other person for their attention. And you better have purpose and intent in your meeting and your discussion, your outline. Do you have an outline for the meeting? Do you have an outline of what you expect? What is the outcome of a good meeting? If the meeting's over with and you look back on the meeting, what would, what would have made a good meeting? What questions should you have asked and got answers to? And if you didn't get the answers, did you go back around and ask again a different way to get the answers that you need so that you can make a decision if you're moving forward and start playing offense instead of defense? That's having a plan. And again, I think it goes without saying, we've already said it, is, is uh, being a good listener. I think that all takes tremendous focus and a little bit of psychology in, in knowing where the other person is coming from. Very important. Um, I went out to work on a bank acquisition in a Western state, <clears throat> small town, county seat community, the bank was over 100 years old. It had gone through several change of hands over its 100 years. Uh, the folks that owned it had owned it about 15 years. They were selling it to the family at that point, point in time that I represented. And conversations had occurred, and there was an interest. And I was dispatched to go out and meet the CEO and meet the team and make some final recommendations and then get the thing into a definitive agreement. I had on my suit, my tie, went out by private aviation. We always put the plane at the end of the runway behind a hay bale so we don't look too pretentious. Going to town in an old pickup truck. But I'm dressed as a businessman. And again, I'm in a Western town, small Western town. 
I walk into the bank. It's a two-story white brick building. It's during the holiday season. I ask the folks I run into at the teller line, I'm here to meet so-and-so, the president of the bank. They said, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Greg Smith. Well, you just walked by him. I turned around, where is he? He's outside. You walked by him when you walked in the building. He's outside. So I walk back outside. There's nobody on the street. It's a tiny little town. It's a white two-story brick building. There's a ladder. It goes up three stories to the roof. I look up. There's a guy up on the ladder hanging Christmas tree lights. He's the president and CEO of the bank. I look up and I say, hey, are you Mr. So-and-so? He said, yeah, who are you? I said, well, I I'm Greg Smith. I'm here to work on the bank acquisition. He says, well, hang on a minute. I'll be right down. So he came down three stories, three flights from this ladder. He was up on the roof hanging these lights. And he um, grabbed me by my necktie. And he pulled a nine-inch blade out of his leather belt where he had all these tools. And <laughs> I didn't think he would really cut my throat, but he cut the necktie off. And he put the necktie in his pouch. And he said, you got to learn our ways here. Nobody in that town wore neckties ever. And uh, I got real schooled on, you know, how to not come prepared to a meeting. Now, that's a pretty dramatic uh, story, but uh, it, it exemplifies the point. You have to get into the shoes of the person on the other side of the table to really get it. Yeah. Hey, we've, we've all seen that story in the movie, right? Where like the banker walks in and the CEOs and in, in some shit kickers and a cowboy hat and the meeting's over before it even starts. Cause you don't, you don't look the part or you did it. Uh, you didn't fit in socially to the role. Yeah. Or worse, uh, as I mentioned in the early eighties, when interest rates were 21 and three quarters percent, not everybody was able to make their payments on time. And, uh, in the Midwest where I'm from, there were bank presidents who would make a call on their customers Sunday morning after church at the farmyard, and maybe not to press for a payment, but to see how they're doing and how's the how's the crops coming along and, and are we going to be able to make the payment this month? And and there was so much tension and pressure with the survival of legacy businesses through multi-generations of families on these farms that some bankers were met with a shotgun and several were killed. And that tension and pressure and stress, you know, made it a really high risk move for a bank president and even to go call on a friend at his home. So again, we have to really empathize and understand where the other side is coming from. I know these are dramatic examples, but um, it's just, uh, it just, just there to make the point. So you have this, this crazy swath of business experience, right? From flying out to the town in uh, Western rural, whatever, to acquire a bank. Um, you know, and, and one of the one of the dangers of us being in a 15 year bull market, you know, since 2008, where interest rates have done nothing but go down until the last 18 months, asset prices have done nothing but go up. Like it didn't matter if you invest in the stock market or mobile home parks or until recently crypto. I mean, just just pick your poison. Everybody's looked like an expert, you know, for 15 years. And now all of a sudden we get about 12, 18 months into what's probably a recession, depending on whether the, the media wants to be honest about it or not. We've got interest rates that have more than doubled. I mean, the average mortgage rate has gone from 3% two years ago to over 7% um, as recently as we're filming this in uh, July of 2023. 
Uh, and I think a lot of people that were selling the expert course on social media or were able to bundle a lot of money because they had a bunch of wins in apartment syndication or whatever the case may be. Uh, like Warren Buffett says, I think the tide's going to go out. So if we could spend a few minutes maybe looking into your crystal ball because you've been through 40, 45 years of business cycles, boom, bust, you know, 2% interest rates, 20% interest rates. What do you see on the economic horizon? And I, I don't care if you want to go with an individual business or the country or the world or inter like, I don't really care what direction you want to take that. But if I was asking for Greg to read the tea leaves for people that are thinking in 2023, where do I put my money? What do I do? Should I be defensive? Should I be offensive? Is it all coming tumbling down? Should it, you know, what, what is, what is your crystal ball say about business in America right now? And, uh, and, and where, where the money should be, or maybe where the money's going. Hmm. Well, of course, I don't know, right? Because right. I wouldn't be on this podcast if I knew the answer. I'd be on a 180-foot Holland midship down in the equator. <laughs> um, uh, the interest rate cycles are very telling, and uh, sometimes they're very volatile. We talked about interest rates in the early 80s, but that followed, uh, a, as you described it a moment ago, a 15- or 16-year cycle from the mid-60s uh, and rampantly all the way through the 70s, which I enjoyed very much as a, as a teenager uh, and then coming into college and then coming out into the job market. Uh, I mean, you couldn't make a bad investment. I started out in commercial lending in a bank as a junior, junior commercial loan officer. And where I was working, you couldn't make a bad loan. I mean, every, everything was golden. But what happened? Interest rates went to 21 and three quarters percent. And now in this economic cycle that we're in, uh, uh, interest rates have really, I said, tripled earlier. I wasn't speaking so much about mortgage rates, but money was pretty cheap at one or one and a half or 2%. And now it's six or seven or eight. Yeah. Um, and, and quite frankly, very seasoned, mature, uh, business owners, businessmen, rich, wealthy family offices are challenged in being able to get all the fun, all the funding funding that they want from their banks because the banks are are becoming quite constrained now how does this happen banks are highly regulated they are a primary funding source uh in the country no there's private net worth and there's hard money loans and there's many other funding sources but we look to the banks to kind of help us uh, with our credit expectations. And when I say bank, I also mean credit union, industrial thrift, savings and loan. So we can aggregate them all together. And, and they're a little bit different, right? Because credit unions, unlike banks, don't pay income taxes. So typically they can put their money out at a little lower rate and for a little longer term, they're regulated, but they don't pay income taxes. Credit unions don't pay income taxes. Um, in terms of economic cycles, keeping in mind that banks are regulated by the federal government, the Treasury Department, the Comptroller of the Currency, the FDIC, the Office of Thrift Supervision back in the day, they're combined now with the Comptroller of the Currency. And if it happens to be a state bank, then they're regulated by state banking commissioners. When these examiners come into a bank, it's very interesting to see what happens. Trends begin to occur. All of a sudden, for example, mobile home financing may fall out of favor. There's too many, there's too many credits in mobile home financing, or maybe it's consumer auto. And all of a sudden, the banks are getting criticized because they have too much consumer auto loans outstanding, concentration. Maybe it's land speculation, large tracts, which will become 
neighborhoods for big home builders falls out of favor because banks start to have a heavy concentration in that. Alte subprime lending in 2001, 2005, 2006, banks were praised for diversifying their loans and their credit into Alte subprime loans. What were those? Stated income first mortgages of first time home buyers or second time home buyers, but on stated income. It fell out of favor real quick in 2008 when bondholders started to lose their assets. So my point there is that federal regulation tends to be very big and very powerful and oftentimes pushes too far in the wrong direction. So we have what I'll refer to as a pendulum. Did interest rates really need to go to 21 and three quarters percent to curb the economy back? Probably not. Do they need to go to even where they are today to pull the economy back? I don't think so. And yet they're still talking about more interest rate moves. And how much of that is to really help the economy of the United States or how much of it is political? I don't know. But it just seems to me in this cycle that we're about tapped out in terms of where we're moving, even though job growth is still good and consumer purchasing is still good. I don't know that we have to keep pushing those interest rates. It's going to be really, really hard for home buyers to buy a home. Apartment owners are loving it. They can't, they can't build enough apartment buildings in many communities throughout the country today because people aren't in their homes. They, they can't stay in their homes. They can't buy their homes. And there's no more stated, or shall we call them liars loans. Right. So I think we see the Fed will, will ease off a little bit. Um, I can't speak to five years or 10 years, obviously, but I think near term, I think we've about had it on these interest rate moves. Um, and I think in terms of where people can put their money and invest, that's uh, largely a question of risk and what level of risk can you take? What is your age? What is your economic situation? Do you have kids to put through college or have you put money away to invest and you can take more risk? Or maybe you're trying to protect your assets rather than uh, accumulate more. Maybe now it's more about asset protection. Registered investment advisors, RIAs, who are regulated by the SEC are often the best people to talk to in your local community about where and how to invest your money and uh, can offer pretty good guidance. Uh, I like to diversify. I'm a strong believer in diversifying. So I think marketable securities are a good place for a significant portion of a portfolio in my case. But I also feel that there's some uh, unique opportunities investing in real estate. And so I do. But do I take the lead and become the principal? No. I invest with people that I trust that are putting real estate deals together. And because I'm an investment banker, maybe I can help them with the equity and the debt pieces of those deals. But I like to invest with people that have proven history and success in real estate. And, and I, that's worked out quite well for me. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the the... Federal Reserve uh, continuing to say that they're going to raise interest rates to slow down the economy. And it's like, that seems to be the only lever they have, right? Like they can mess with the money supply and some other weird things. But the one that really hits the consumer and really changes the, the news cycle, if we will, is are they going to raise or lower interest rates? And it always feels there's, there's very few things that I have um, specialized knowledge in after 23 years of doing mortgages and working at a bunch of mortgage companies and banks and being through a couple epic bank and mortgage company failures, that's one of the few things that I feel, you know, uniquely qualified to talk about. 
And just in my limited experience, it always seems that the Federal Reserve is either late to the late to the party to raise rates or they overshoot the mark. You know, and we, we currently have a Federal Reserve president who's not even an economist. He was a lawyer. And so when you when you think about these boom and bust cycles, it's like, hey, did interest rates ever need to go to two and a half percent on a 30 year mortgage? Probably not. Could have stimulated just as many refinances at three and a half. And now mm -hmm. do they need to be seven or eight or nine? Maybe, but it feels like they're overshooting the mark again. So when I talk to people that are, you know, kind of in the know or a lot in the know, like my friend Barry Habib, where this is all he focuses on his entire life for economics, tracking the bond market, giving loan officers cues on where interest rates might go. I, I'm just left with the question is like, is the Federal Reserve, are they ignorant or nefarious? Because like just that one little microcosm of the U.S. economy, it's like, are you guys just constantly this wrong, overshooting the mark back and forth? And, you know, again, being late to the party to raise interest rates when they should be cooling things off and then overshooting the mark? Or is there something more political and nefarious going on? I mean, you have a lot more business experience than I do. Do you ever just scratch your head and be like, man, is this guy, is this guy dumb or evil? And I'm not talking about any guy in specific. I'm talking about the machine and the beast, which is the U.S. economy and the government involvement in that. Like, do, do you look at stuff and just scratch your head or am I the only one? I think uh, I think anybody that uh, uh, thinks about it long enough and, and just has what I'll refer to as common sense, although we all have different kinds of common sense. I mean, I think most people do scratch their head and wonder why. Why do we have to do that? And who's being hurt? Who's being hurt by six and seven percent interest rates? People that really need the money. I mean, people yeah. that are consumers that have to put groceries on the table and pay for their kids' education and, and put shoes on the baby. And, you know, we have to think about that constituency. And, and you know, this, this is the kind of thing that makes and breaks elections, right? I mean, which administration is going to be, be held accountable for this round of interest rate pegs? And when right. is it going to stop? Right. So, yeah, you got to think about whether it's political and whether it's really needed. And if the government is trying to get so far ahead of a problem that they're too far ahead of themselves. Uh, back in the 80s and 90s, we had over 12,000 banks in America. Canada had four. Today, we have fewer than 5,000. Canada has a few more than four. It's... Uh, is a tremendous concentration of where all this credit is coming from being downsized from 12,000 to 5,000 and probably half again, as many credit unions. So there's a lot of money held uh, by many fewer entities. And I'll just say again, it's heavily regulated. So if a bank in Philadelphia gets uh, the sniffles, uh, a bank in Colorado could, you know, get deathly ill and a bank in California could die because these regulators start pulling back on the banks in terms of what they can do and how much money they can put out and mm -hmm. what the concentrations are. That by the time a borrower gets into bank, I mean, his industry might even be banned in banking. Who knows? Right. But banks that have been singled out and praised for their diversification into these alternative types and kinds of credits uh, sometimes find an untimely death. And when that happens, again, momentum and inertia, the regulators just pile on and they'll make an example out of total innocence that were doing what they thought was best and never took a dime from the institution. And they get laid out and ended.
and it's uh, it's just these cycles that we go through. So yeah, I certainly do hope that interest rates have leveled off and we see them come back a little bit. Yeah, I, I get a lot of people asking me because I'm supposed to be the finance guy. You know, I'm not the the realtor, the salesperson. They'll ask me, they're like, well, you know, do you think property values are going to crash? And I don't think that's the case at all because everybody who's gotten a loan after, you know, after the last 15 years has had real skin in the game, has been properly underwritten. We still have a massive, um, a massive shortage of available properties for the families out there that want to buy. But I do get worried about, you kind of, you, you kind of mentioned a bank in Philadelphia who gets the sniffles could turn into a bank failure in California or vice versa. I do get the feeling that coming out of 2008, that too big to fail like we almost have more systemic risk right now. As you said, the lending institutions are down. The regulate the regulation is more broad and bigger and and more aggressive than it's ever been. I remember they're not in existence anymore, but I work for a company called Prospect Mortgage and they got, I don't know, $14 million fine from one of the regulators in banking. And it was for something that they had literally gotten an award for five years ago. So they were like, hey, mm -hmm. the way that you're diversifying your risk and working inside of real estate offices and serving low to moderate income buyers, this is the model. They actually had the trophy at corporate from the Federal Housing Administration and then doing the same exact thing five years later, they got a, you know, whatever it was, $4 million or $14 million or $24 million fine. And they're like, but wait a minute, we have the trophy. You told us that we were doing a good job. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, new regulations, new administration. What are you going to do? You can fight us for the next five years in court over this and we'll suspend your ability to do FHA loans and basically put your business out of, out of, we'll put your business out of business or just pay yeah. us the fine. And I was like, that sounds like the mob, not the government. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that, that systemic risk with how intertwined everything is, uh, it's a, it's a real concern. And I guess everybody just kind of buyer or investor beware. You've got to have a little bit of a defensive strategy or a defensive angle to your portfolio. And you got to have a little bit of offensive. Is that, is that a fair way to think about it? If you're thinking about being an investor from the individual level? Yeah, it is. And you have to think about, again, the economic cycles and where is your particular industry going? I mean, uh, and, and, and how will you be affected? If, and, and if you can work your way out of it, uh, perhaps through vertical integration of alternative businesses, uh, like if you're in the title business, maybe you want to get into the loan processing business. If you're in the loan processing business, maybe you want to get into the appraisal business uh, or maybe horizontal integration. Or maybe you want to get into buying and selling homes or uh, acquiring multifamily properties. So you can go vertical, you can go horizontal, but you need to know where you are in trends and cycles. And, and, and there again, uh, nothing wrong with going in for an informational interview to your banker or your mortgage lender and talk to them about how they see it in your local market and where these trends are going. I mean, interest rates and, and uh, land values and housing values, uh, take for example, Scottsdale, Arizona or Maricopa County where Phoenix is. I mean, they're still enjoying considerable growth and new construction, but that's somewhat geocentric because you have all, all of this migration coming in from California that Highway 10 is so clogged, you can't even get another car on it for all the people that are trying to get out of California state income taxes at 12 or 13% and all the other chaos in that state. And they're looking for an alternative of another place. And uh, Arizona is boomtown, even in this unusual economic cycle. But Maricopa County is also one of those places where you have tremendous up and down cycles. So keep in mind, like if you're in the Midwestern part of the country, we don't see those kinds of economic cycles. 
In Arizona, every seven or eight or nine years, they give up about three or four banks, which go into failure yep. because of their lending and their advance rates and, and who's getting the money and all the rest of it. Uh, and there again, uh, you can have banks and bank presidents and bank owners that receive high praise by the regulators, written high praise by the regulators. And because of economic conditions or what, whatever it might be, um, things turn real quick. Uh, I think the Alte subprime market is the thing in my 50-year career, 51 career in, in business that I saw turned our heads more quickly than anything. And it is the subject of many movies and books, the big short and so on and so forth. But uh, when you had investors buying collateralized bonds from Lehman, Goldman, Morgan, Nomura, and they were buying these bonds and they were earning five or six percent interest rate. They thought they had died and gone to heaven because they were the safest thing in the world. The collateral for those bonds was mortgages and they had like two dollars of mortgages for every dollar of bond that they purchased. So how could anything go wrong? Right. And the regulators were raving about how great this was that through our economy in the United States that people could get a mortgage and loosened up the underwriting so much that they could lie on the application and put down any income level they want because it was not verified. It was stated. And it's like, seriously? Right. We call that banking? We call that lending? And the money was going out left and right. And, and, and there were banks that were making 25 and 30 and 40% return on their equity while this was going on. Maybe they weren't originating the loans, maybe they were wholesaling them. If they were, they were selling them to laymen at 110, 112, 115 premium <clears throat> over par. But when these borrowers couldn't make the payment because their income was stated and they didn't have the income to make the payment, then what? The loans fail. And if the loans fail, they don't make the coupon payment, who suffered at the other end? The bondholder. He thought he had $2 of collateral for every dollar he invested and oops, the collateral was only worth 80 cents. Oops, it was only worth 70 cents. And now the house is, is, is occupied by squatters. No one's keeping up the pool. It's green and there's alligators in it. That great scene from the big short. That was so good. Crazy, right? But yet the number of homes that failed, the number of mortgages that failed, it didn't have to cause our whole economy to suffer. We didn't have to have tens of thousands of people standing outside the lines at IndyMac in California with the planes going overhead, taking those pictures and putting them up on CNN. Right. What spooked a lot of people was when President Bush was in the Rose Garden giving, giving a... Um, speech of some sort, having nothing to do with banking or the financial crisis. And yet IndyMac had just gone into failure, which shocked everybody into receivership by the FDIC. And somebody stood up and said, President Bush, with the failure of IndyMac, how much money do we have in the FDIC to take care of that problem? And Bush grabs the podium and you can almost see his knuckles turning white. He didn't know. Someone came and put the number in his ear. The answer was 55 billion. But the loss of IndyMac ate up a great deal of that money. And today we have, as I said, fewer than half the banks we used to have 
And the cost of doing business with the FDIC has gone up a lot because somebody's got to pay for these abysmal auctions. And there's no worse uh, auctioneer than the federal government. I mean, if they're going to run an auction, whether it's a farm auction or the sale of a bank, it's like, raise your hand. Who wants to go to the party? I mean, it's... <laughs> because they, they undervalue the asset that they have, right? Well, yeah, I mean, people don't bid up very high when they're buying a Fed asset. They start the numbers so low and, you know, what's the, the government's the nonprofit, right? I mean, they're, 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 they're not auctioning to see how much money they can make. Certainly, they want to recover. Don't get me wrong. They want to recover. They have to recover. But it's very, very difficult for them to run an efficient auction. Many times, they'll turn the auctions over to third parties. Third parties will be a little more effective. Yeah, something that is kind of flying under the radar with the failure, quote unquote, of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, First Republic Bank, and there was one or two others. We're already at a market cap where the quote unquote failed banks in 2023 is greater than all of the failed banks from 2008, 2009. But somehow that story's fallen under the radar or the government has just stepped in to backstop those in a way that kind of make me feel a little uncomfortable. There's... um. There's a great book called The Lost Bank. It's about the rise and fall of Washington Mutual. Because you worked in the space for so long, you will love this book. It's called The Lost Bank. And I had a front row seat to much of what is written in that book because I worked for Washington Mutual the first eight years of my career. A lot of people think Washington Mutual failed because of bad mortgages. They failed because of an old school run on the bank. You know, when Hillary Clinton got up and said, these are liar loans, and then Bush didn't know what was in the FDIC, it created this panic and I remember I was working at a branch in uh, Burbank, California, where on a given day we would have, you know, two or three million dollars of net in, net out deposits. Somebody would take out their CD, but 300 people would deposit their payroll, you know, and we'd have like a P&L for that one branch. And I remember as soon as the bad news started coming out, it would be like, oh, we lost 8 million in deposits today, 11 million deposits today. And that was at one branch because people were coming in and taking out their 100 grand, their 200 grand, thinking that the bank was going to go under. And it wasn't it wasn't bad mortgages that crushed Washington Mutual. It was like that scene in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, where there's a run on the bank and everybody wants their money out. That's really what happened to Washington Mutual at a large scale. And then the government just stepped in and effectively gave it to Chase Bank because, you know, Jamie Dimon and whoever was in the Federal Reserve were best buddies, you know, old college drinking buddies. And it's like, oh, it's just so disgusting that the government stepped in and got to pick all the winners and losers because, you know, yeah. WAMU failed, but Wells Fargo made it just from dumb luck. And uh, very, very frustrating to me as a Washington Mutual uh, employee on how that all went down. But I, I digress. If you've, if you've made it this far in the podcast, go buy the book, The Lost Bank, and uh, read it because it's a, it's a fascinating look at the banking industry, even if, even if you don't work in it. Um, all right, I keep getting sidetracked here, and I want to return to your book. Um, speak to my 21 year old son for a minute, Greg, you know, he's finishing college in New York in about the next 18 months. Uh, he's not quite sure what he wants to do, but he not, he wants to work in a field that's satisfying and he wants to get some more life experience. And maybe that means banking. Maybe that means sustainable seafood. Maybe that means opening the door on his own business and building a t-shirt empire. You know, he's, he's like most 21 year olds. He's just, he's finishing college and not really sure what he wants to do. If you were talking to somebody like that, you know, because it, it seemed very obvious to me that you had a plan in your 20s to get to where you were in your 30s to obtain the kind of wealth and success and financial stability for your family that you now have in your 70s. What's the advice you would give that 21-year-old 
who's kind of looking to carve out their path. You know, they they don't know for certain because I don't think most 21-year-olds do. Hey, I want to work in AI. I want to have an engineer job at Google for 10 years and then build my own tech company that's going to take over the landscape of uh, mobile billing payment systems from a cell phone. You know, very, very few 20, 21, 22, 25-year-olds have that insight. What, what, what are some of the suggestions from your book about opening doors, unlocking those doors, getting more knowledge, and really figuring out where you want to put your life's passions towards. Um, what are some lessons from your book you would give to you know my twenty one year old son? Yeah, I would I would say first of all, it's it's okay not to know. It, it's okay to be puzzled by that question. It's okay to to uh, not have that chart uh, in front of you with with all of its milestones and dates. Back in the 70s, early 70s, when I came out of college, there was a clear expectation that you got through school in four years, you had your career chosen, you were going to get to an employer, you were going to set your path, and then that was going to be it. And that worked for a lot of people. And it was more that it was the expectation put on them by others than it was necessarily what that person wanted to do. So I know many people that are my age or younger in the baby boomer generation that led very unhappy careers because they got stuck into this notion of expectation and it was not their expectation it was the expectation maybe of their parents or society or the economy or the schools and the way schools taught that you would have your career and that would be it you can't know what you're going to really be good at when you come out of school and i hate to tell people this when they come out of school they really don't know too much i mean they've got the book learning and the grades and the credentials but in terms of what are you going to do tomorrow in, in, in business or whatever the career path might be, you've just begun your learning. Your, your learning will be your life's experience. Your learning will be your interface with all of the people and the constituents and the problems and the challenges you're going to have before you. That's where the real learning occurs. I mean, you maybe build some common sense and practical knowledge in school, and it's useful, and I'm an advocate of school, but I know plenty of people that have not finished a college education and some that haven't even started it that are wildly successful, not just financially, but in their personal lives with their families and their motherhood or fatherhood or their parenting and whatever it might be. Um, and they didn't have that education. I'm a, I'm a strong advocate of college education. Um, uh, I think that in the book, uh, we try and convey open-mindedness uh, and self-awareness. Uh, open-mindedness that uh, any door that we may find, we get on the other side of it, there may be a whole other world there for us. Self-awareness that we probably are better at some things than others, and we have to admit it, and we have to uh, uh, find uh, reasonable challenges and acceptable challenges and not challenges that are so great that we can't ever achieve them. I mean, everybody's different. Everybody has their own capabilities. Uh, they have their own version of common sense. They have their own limitations. And we can't all be brain surgeons. Uh, we can't all be experts in biology. So I think we start leaning towards where our interests might be, but we also have to be practical unless we wanna live in your basement Right. Uh, we'll have to uh, be able to make some money and uh, provide for ourselves and maybe eventually a family and our and our livelihood. So I think uh, that should be a part of the equation. We can't just live in the moment. 
when we're getting into the job and the career and the financial uh, and business pathway that we're going to go on. I love living in the moment. I try and live in the moment as much as I can, but we have to live in the moment in the future and the moment ahead of us when we have car payments and we have life insurance and we have housing bills and we're not living in our parents' basement. And if we can get the idea that we're going to live in our parents' basement out of our head and start owning our own decisions and holding ourselves accountable for our decisions, I think we start holding ourselves accountable for what's going to happen and own it. Maybe we get a little more serious about our perseverance and what we're going to do and what's going to work. And maybe find that mentor, again, going back to people that can help us make good decisions and then try and make the best decisions that we can. Will we make mistakes? Yes, they are our best teachers, as long as we learn from them. If we take our mistakes and brush them under the rug and say, well, that was an odd situation. It shouldn't have happened. It happened because of this and this and this. No, maybe we own that mistake. I own plenty of them. So I think uh, uh, it's maybe a little different way of thinking. For me, it's mm-hmm. kind of like common sense, but for a lot of people, it's not. And we have to kind of force ourselves on certain points to really give thought to it. And I would add, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as we've been talking here about ego, it's a great friend. It can propel us, it can create momentum. It can also hurt us and disable us if it gets in the way. So we have to manage our ego and we have to realize that people that we deal with have egos too. And sometimes they don't want to get rid of their egos. You don't even know if you're dealing with the real person or the ego. Right. Egos, having an ego talk to an ego is pointless because nothing good is going to come of that. Just a waste of time. But if we can be truthful to ourselves and know ourselves a little bit more through self-awareness and then, you know, try and build some trust with people that we can get to talk to us where we can listen to them and build a little camaraderie and a little confidence, I think, you know, that starts the building process of what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? And living the life, whatever the life might be, and this is in the last chapter of the book, um, and someone said this is in a Jimmy Buffett song, and I didn't know that. But uh, in the book, we talk a little bit about our journey uh, to a destination or to achieve a destination or to achieve a milestone. And clearly, at least in my life, uh, the journey is the destination. It's yeah. not a destination. It's the journey. It's what we did, how we lived it, how people recall it, who we touched, in what, in what lives, and how did we touch people's lives it's uh, it's looking back and having made good choices and uh, and hopefully living long enough to be able to enjoy that. I love it, man. That's that's the way to end the podcast. I'm going to end with my two favorite questions. You know, we're filming this uh, summer of 2023. I'd love to ask what you personally are looking forward to the second half of the year uh, going into the summer and the fall and then I guess winter. Uh, and then what is your favorite movie and why? I really need to get in the habit of asking this question first because I, I feel I'm such a movie buff. I feel like I can learn a lot about a person when I ask them what's their favorite movie and why, and then what are you most looking forward uh, to going into the second half of the year? Well, I'm going to have to think about the movie thing. Um, but I'll answer the first question first, and that is I've got a trip coming up to Bergen, Norway. We're going to stop in Stockholm, where my wife has family living there, her brother and and, uh, nieces and nephews. So from Stockholm, we're going to Bergen. We're meeting my brother and sister, and we're going to hop on a cruise ship and sail down the coast, down to the southern tip of Spain, north of Morocco, and then go into the Mediterranean. I think we're going to end up in Barcelona for a little while. So that's this fall. And when you live in Minnesota, you want to start making plans to get the hell out of here in the wintertime because it's pretty busy. 
and I've got you know the best part of seventy years to to uh, to experience that. Um, I'm also looking forward to four birthdays that are coming up for my four grandchildren: A, C, E, and S. Uh, Ava Cooper, Everett, and Sebastian. Uh, their ages are thirteen to four, soon to be fourteen to five, and uh, they're a lot of why I'm 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 back in Minnesota. I had stepped away for about fifteen years to run some businesses and be involved in some businesses and. These kids pulled me back and, you know, if you're grandparenting, you got to stay close to those grandkids because they grow up way too fast. Uh, in terms of movies, I think you mentioned one earlier that was uh, Jimmy Stewart was in it and he is the banker in a small town. What's the name of that movie? It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. I would say that might be one of my favorite movies. Yeah, pheno phenomenal flick, start to finish. I'm always, you know, it's in black and white, so it, to a certain generation, it's it looks a little aged. But I'm always shocked how many people around Christmas have never seen that movie because it's it's basically a tale of um, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge and being revisited by ghosts of Christmas present, past, and future. And uh, it's just, I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, it's got a lot of real tension in it. Stewart was a great actor. It's a great cast. Uh, it, it's got tremendous tension in it for all the people in the community and the bank and the financial woes that they were suffering at that time and the people that were maybe a little more on the greedy side, as you mentioned, the, the Scrooge character. But um, it's got a pretty interesting outcome, and it gives us something to think about, and I think something to be hopeful for. Have you ever read a biography on uh, James, a.k.a. Jimmy Stewart? It's absolutely one of the most fascinating human beings ever like his his biography his military service the things that the things that he accomplished in his life i mean it, it's like his life is a jimmy stewart movie but he's really jimmy stewart he really lived it um if you've never got a chance to read one of his biographies you should because just a, a fascinating human being agreed i haven't read the book but I, I i know of his past and his military career and how he got started in the motion picture business and it's a pretty interesting story you would imagine most least likely person to succeed and he did yeah yeah amazing so hey greg i really appreciate you being on wishing you all the success with the book um we'll make sure we get out some social media clips on that to promote the book i know i'm going to buy a copy and send it to my 21 year old so that he's got uh more doors that unlock during his life because the the knowledge that you've put in from the book just the little bit that i've gotten to peruse and thank you for the advanced copy uh looks awesome congratulations on still like breaking new ground at 70 and uh just just now you're becoming an author then you're gonna become a speaker and you got you got a whole no, new chapter to write hey and i got to do a podcast with you right that's great i i appreciate you and uh we'll shoot you an email when this all comes out we'll go from there wonderful thanks again scott great all right see you soon Yep, bye.